0: The other piece of Crystal that was so very, very different is the rabid nature of our ski base. The Pacific Northwest skis, and they want to ski a lot. I wasn't used to, to, to really almost not having to market. We've worked on trying to balance capacity more so than bring skiers out. And, and that's a combination of things. It's a combination of it being a big mountain of just this incredible quality of the terrain we have of a long-standing dedicated ski culture that exists in Crystal. And I think, you know, when you put those things together, you've, you've got a strong recipe.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I'm very happy to bring you my first episode focused on a ski area in the Pacific Northwest. Before we get to that, if you're new here, there's one thing you need to do right now. Go subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. If you're just listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, fine, but you're missing out on a big part of the storm. I am not a podcaster with a newsletter. I'm a writer with a podcast. The pod is the least of this whole thing. So go sign up and then follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First though, I gotta tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette, founded in 1966. Mountain Gazette is a large format, biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you're going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is an absolute monster. 16 and a half inches tall, by 10 and three quarters inches wide. What has not changed is the incredible wide ranging writing and show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, due out this fall, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today at mountaingazette.com to reserve your copy. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That will ensure you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else. Including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 58, Frank DeBerry, President and CEO of Crystal Mountain, Washington. All right, the storm hits Washington. As many of you know, the storm has focused almost exclusively on the Northeast for its first two years. But it was time to branch out, and one of the regions I am most amped to explore is the Pacific Northwest. And the reason I'm fired up for this is not only because Crystal is one of the country's best peer skier ski areas. The reason I'm so into this is the absolute battering ram that is Pacific Northwest ski culture outside of the Northeast, the greatest volume of notes I've received since launching the storm are coming from Washington. And they're telling me, hey, no one else gets it. We've got huge mountains, Cottonwood's caliber snow totals, easy access, and an outdoors-oriented mentality. And yet we get no respect nationally. That needs to change. Washington is legit skiing wrapped in a legit ski culture. And we've got the leader of the Biggest Washington ski area of them all to tell us all about that today. Let's go. My guest today has been president and CEO of Crystal Mountain, Washington since 2018. With 2,600 skiable acres served by 11 lifts on a 3,100 foot vertical drop, Crystal Mountain is the largest ski area in the state of Washington. The resort averages nearly 500 inches of snowfall per year. Prior to joining the team at Crystal, he was president and CEO of Snowshoe Mountain, West Virginia for nearly eight years. And prior to that, president and CEO of Mountain Creek, New Jersey. He also spent time with Intrawest Corporate Operation focused on Mountain Creek and Stratton, Vermont. Frank DeBerry is my guest. Frank, so good to host you on the show today.
0: It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me, Stuart.
1: Frank, let's go back to the beginning of your career here. Tell us how you got your start with IntraWest and what you did in that first job.
0: Yeah, you know, IntraWest inherited me. Ah, interesting. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, when they came in and purchased Mountain Creek back in February of 1998, uh, the uh, mountain was bankrupt at the time. I had most recently been the rental shop manager and the lifeguard manager in the summer times. And spent much of the bankruptcy doing some landscaping and security and whatever odd uh, jobs we we still needed to get done through the bankruptcy. And they they came in and um, you know very quickly uh, found their way as to how, how they wanted to start running the mountain. And and I joined the the team to help run, the team that helped run the water park. And we went on from there.
1: You know, I hosted Bill Benian on the podcast last year and he's of course now at the Hermitage Club but I asked him because he was also a Mountain Creek at that time as I'm sure you know mm-hmm. and I said have you ever seen anything like that because Intra West came in and basically just burned the place to the ground and started over <laughs> I mean I don't know if there's ever been anything else like that lift transition that they did that summer what was that like living through that Frank
0: Yeah, it was amazing, and it wasn't just lifts. I mean, they rebuilt the entire snowmaking system in the first year as well. So it was a huge, huge year with uh, lots of helicopters, lots of cranes, (laughs) lots, (laughs) lots of heavy equipment running around. But it really did transform the the mountain, especially on the winter side of the business. And um, you know, we went from an extremely old lift system of um, you know fixed grip doubles. I think. Most of them were, were Partek or BORVIG um, you know, from the from the 70s. A couple of them back into the 60s, um, to a really modern fleet in a matter of one year, right? Mm-hmm. So two new lifts at, at South Mountain, uh, both detaches, a new fixed grip at the North Mountain. Uh, cabriolet gondola at the vernon peak which i think in retrospect they may have done differently had they known that the village was not going to be at the top of the mountain right and um you know and some new fixed grips also at uh you know in in surrounding that at the vernon peak so it was it was unbelievable it was chaotic it was a lot of fun and it was exciting you know honestly in some ways it's a more intense version of what we're doing here at crystal
1: Yeah, big change is happening. It's it's funny, I was talking to uh, Hugh Reynolds, who is the VP of marketing for Snow Operating, which now owns Mountain Creek. And we're talking about that lift system. He's like, yeah, it's a great lift system, but the problem is it's all the same age. So when we have to replace that (laughs) thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yep, we're gonna yep. be in trouble luckily yeah. I think they're in, they're in pretty good shape right now now my my listeners will uh they'll get tired of me frank talking about mountain creek because that is my home mountain I'm based in Brooklyn New York so it's only about an hour and 15 minutes from me um and, and I'm sort of on a a quest to defend mountain creek because I I think it gets a bit a bad rap you I know agree. I think yes it's full of people who maybe aren't super good at skiing or have the best control it's busy yeah. but it's a very big place the snow is outstanding they have that high speed lift system it's cheap if you know how to work the mountain it's 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 a pretty nice place right it's my local i go there all the time now help us understand as the guy who's been on the other side how challenging is it to keep that machine running given where it's located the volume of skiers you get the marginal weather you get just take us inside that whole thing for a minute
0: yeah. It's, it's nearly impossible to run. <laughs> um, no, it's a, you know, it's a challenging mountain for all the reasons you just mentioned the most, um, the most challenging being the inconsistent weather. Right. And we've, I remember days where we would be closed on a Wednesday, you know, it was just pouring down rain, just couldn't be open. And then we'd have 10,000 skiers that very Saturday, right. Cause wow. it snowed on Thursday or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and so the variability is huge. A um, lot of beginners, as you pointed out, but somebody needs to teach people how to ski, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. so Mountain Creek's been a great place of doing that. I think that snow operatings tie in with uh, big snow down in the Meadowlands. There is going to help them, you know, sort of uh, be able to do that that entry level teaching people, getting people interested. Um, you know, down in the Meadowlands, and then they can start to move people up to Mountain Creek. I think that's why they they got involved in, in that additional operation down there. And, um, you know, large crowds, because you're close to a metro area, similar to, to a lot of, you know, day visit metro areas, not dissimilar to Crystal in that particular mm-hmm. aspect. right. Um, but, but that's what we do when we're in the Metro visit, you know, uh, business. And so, um, you know, you just, you do your best to, to take care of things. I think that between some of the stuff InterWest did with capacity increasing and, um, and moving different parts of the mountain around to different areas in order to sort of create some, some more consistent traffic patterns within the mountain. Um, those things have helped. Uh, I think uh, Joe Hessian, who who uh, owns Snow Operating, and when he was in in uh, involved with the in the Interwest days, helped us to sort of take some of the terrain parks and realign those in order to you know create one of the one of the worst things we had going on was we had a terrain park that was I'll call it you know all the way to the skier's right we had mm-hmm. a we had this terrain park. And yep. as you got to the bottom, you had to haul ass across these flats that separated mm-hmm. the bottom of the terrain park from the lift. Right. And right between those two areas was the teaching terrain.
1: Right. So, you know, we had all <laughs>
0: of our park kids just, you know, cruising at high speed right through the beginner area. And then mm-hmm. all of our beginners, you know, upset about that. And so those great. are the things that that came. So you make the most of every inch of space you have. But it is a great mountain. You know, you've got a thousand feet of vertical right outside of, of New York. And, um, and a really committed ownership now. Um, and, and, you know, it's going to be crowded when it's snowy. Because it's you know it's a day visit mountain and uh, and you're gonna have those challenges but but you know that that lift infrastructure is is terrific and um, I I still absolutely love Mountain Creek I visit it typically once a year in the winter and once a year in the summer when I go back to see family and um, you know still enjoy skiing it and um, I don't know how anyone could could really not like it.
1: Yeah, it's you know I still attribute a lot of Mountain Creek's ongoing success to the enormous investments that Intrawest made, both in snowmaking uh, and in chairlift infrastructure. And of course, Joe and his team are doing an outstanding job, and they get skiing and they and they get uh, how to make that place work and what it is and and how to make it move. Why do you think that Intrawest gave up on Mountain Creek? Why did they sell it? Well. IntraWest's big
0: challenge uh, was that it was more of a real estate company than a ski company, right? Mm-hmm. So what it was doing was selling real estate assets, and they knew that they could do that at a premium when they were attached to these wonderful ski recreational assets. And um, not to say that IntraWest wasn't committed to good skiing. I mean, it, you know, I worked under Hugh Smythe, who's one of the you know legends of the ski industry, and, and there was no one who cared more about the ski industry ski experience than Hugh. And um, you know, but but with that said, the money was coming from real estate back then. And the the you know, truth be told, um, the the real estate market started to really boil and bubble over it from 06 to 08. Interest didn't necessarily give up on Mountain Creek. What happened was the real estate market crashed and Interest became pretty poor and um, and really had to pare down the assets that that they owned. And so Mountain Creek and Panorama and Copper Mountain, and most painfully so Whistler Blackcomb, um, you know, selling those mountains was what kept uh, IntraWest afloat. And, um, and it worked for IntraWest. And, and I think in the end, I think it's also worked for the mountains that they sold.
1: So as IntraWest exited Mountain Creek, it looks like you stayed with IntraWest, uh, moved to snowshoe resort in West Virginia. So tell us about snowshoe and what it's like to run that resort.
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the funnest transitions, right. Going from New York day visit metro area, ski, ski mountain to, uh, purely destination tucked in the Appalachian mountains of West Virginia. Um, you know, cultural change, market change, everything was different. And, um, snowshoe also just a really really fun mountain i i remember um you know when i was in new jersey people told us about snowshoe and we said people ski in west virginia <laughs> you know not not noting not knowing that you know you've got peaks that are at 4800 feet and um and you know and there's there's really good snow and um going to snowshoe was great for me because um you know it was it was it's really you know decent quality snow. It's, it's great East coast snow. It's rarely icy. Um, you know, you get a lot of, uh, orographic lift off the great lakes. And so the snow quality is good. Um, that the, the scope of the market, which is really the entire mid Atlantic and Southeast, uh, was, was really fun to be able to, you know, go out and dig and, and find new ways to bring skiers from all these various areas. Um, if anyone on the East coast hasn't skied snowshoe, I would recommend that you do do so because it's, it's good skiing. It's a lot of fun. The village is outstanding and and they really are committed to, you know, to, to providing good experience. So my transition, um, you know, was, it was, it was a bit of a culture shock, but the people there were incredibly warm and welcoming. Um, I, you know, instantly enjoyed the skiing that was there. And, um, you know, we, we really, I, I had a really fun eight years at, at Snowshoe.
1: Eight years is a long time. I, it's, it's sort of a, a chance to settle in and really kind of get a sense of ownership of a place. So what was your focus at Snowshoe? What, what were you trying to do that maybe they hadn't been able to do before? How, how are you trying to improve that resort and that experience?
0: Yeah, so so at Snowshoe, um, we were, the first thing we needed to do was really find its value equation. Um, you know, Snowshoe was losing skier visits at the time. Um, I think quite honestly got a little too big for its britches uh, in price standpoint at the time. And I remember my first winter going in and, and ch- just um, as a secret shop, I went in and I tried to book a vacation at Snowshoe and a vacation at Steamboat. And uh, it turned out to be more expensive to book your vacation at snowshoe than steamboat, um, yeah, even after airfare so <laughs> so you know the the early days there were were definitely about trying to um, you know find that value. Um, enhance the nighttime and, and evening experience, um, you know, find ways to add dining capacity and things like that. The mountain was run, you know, by, by a really good quality mountain ops team and Ed Galford and Ken Gator. Uh, Ken's still there today. And so I didn't have a ton of concerns on that side, other than trying to move people similar to what we did at Mountain Creek, really try to Balance out different pieces of the mountain. Get more people to realize that the Silver Creek side of that mountain, even though it has older lift infrastructure, has a really fun and interesting terrain layout, and and uh, and is great. You know, is really enjoyable skiing. Um, and then as time went on, you know, really started focusing on what we were going to do to uh, to add to the capacity in the winter time and and identify some lift opportunities, which. I know Patty Duncan, you know, as, as a sister resort, I still know what goes on at snowshoe. And so I know that Patty's working with, with the Altera folks on that. And then the last piece that we, um, you know, that, that we found important was, was honestly just trying to fill out snowshoe around the core skiing. It, it is a, it is a vacation destination. And so when the lift shut off, what else are you going to do? Right? And, right. Um, that extends into the nights and, and the nightlife and the, and the, um, other on-mountain activities like the snowmobile program and the, you know, the Sasquatch hunts and things like that. And it also extended into the summer and the focus on really growing that mountain bike program and, and those types of things as well. But it was, you know, it was a fun eight years. I think we had a lot of success at, at making people happy and uh, and I think that they continue to do that today.
1: So 2018, the ski world just completely rearranges Altera comes together uh, out of the bones of IntraWest and some other entities, and it looks like you had the opportunity to move out to Crystal, which they bought shortly after coming together. So take us through this, Frank. Uh, how did that opportunity to run Crystal come up, and and what made you decide to do it after spending your career in the East to move all the way West that, like, like that?
0: Yeah, I think it, I, I sometimes laugh because geographically, I'm not sure how many more um, distant transitions are available within the United <laughs> States than West Virginia to Washington, but right. um, but uh, you know when we were looking at at Crystal, um, you know David Perry, who was our president at the time, had, had given me a call and said, uh, you know, is this something you'd be interested in doing? We're we're about to buy this mountain. We think it has a tremendous amount of potential and 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 upside. We want to make some investments. You know, we really do think that it would be a fun mountain to run and that you've got a lot of opportunity. And uh, so I came up for a visit and, and looked around, instantly knew I wanted to come here. Just, just the mountain itself made me want to be here. Um, you know, we have extraordinary terrain. Extra- it's truly extraordinary terrain. And then we sit adjacent to Mount Rainier National Park, so, you know, the opportunities uh, in the summertime um, are, are tremendous as well. And, um, you know, I, and quite frankly, you know, from a personal standpoint, um, you know, my, my snowshoe life involved family two hours away from my mountain. So I was doing a lot of long distance commuting. And you put all those things together and I just, I really wanted to, to make that change. So I, I don't think I had left the mountain before I called David back and said, you know, yes, please let me go do this. <laughs> and and uh, it was two months later that I was here.
1: It's amazing. I, I, was, uh, I was interviewing Dan Torsell earlier and he <laughs> runs Ski Cooper and he, <laughs> like you, had a career in the East and <laughs> Ski Cooper has no snowmaking. And I said, right. what was that like, you know, going from working at Killington and Sugarbush and Pennsylvania, where that was, you know, a huge percentage of your time and concern to going to Ski Cooper and you just never even think about it. That whole operation doesn't exist. And he <laughs> said, well, it was awesome. And so so what was that like for you, Frank? I mean, you go from Mountain Creek where you're lucky to scratch together six inches some seasons mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're, you have more snow than you know what to do with it. Crystal, what was that like?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, so first of all, that was probably the biggest bit of learning for me was you know how to rely on natural snowfall mm-hmm. and, uh, and also the skier attitudes around snow. So we have a very small snowmaking system. Our snowmaking system is essentially designed to connect the bottom of the mountain when the snow levels rise, right? Okay. So our snowmaking goes from our base um, up to about 5,500 feet Mm-hmm. And we consistently get good snowfall up above that level. And so, you know, that's what John did. I will tell you, as an East Coaster who was used to pumping 400 million gallons a year of water <laughs> uh, through our system, and learning that, you know, the prior owner, John, had spent, you know, more than $3 million to be able to pump 24 million gallons of snow a year. <laughs> right. Um, I was I was shocked that the investment was made, but I can tell you after two slow starts, which our first two December's were, mm-hmm. um, one of the smartest investments a ski operator could make, and so um, you know it it has been beneficial to us. My first winter here, having come from the east and and knowing that we often ski on that you know that white ribbon of fun, uh, just because we want to get skis on the ground. Um, you know, I suggested that I said to the team here, I'm like, well, let's just open the lower mountain where we can make snow. And, uh, people looked at me like I was out of my mind. (laughs) Um, but we did it and we had some fun. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't huge and and our core skiers came and probably did a run. Right. But, um, but it was fun for everybody. We really enjoyed doing it. We, we repeated the same thing the second year last year was very different. We were able Mm -hmm. to start on all cylinders, um, so it's nice to, it's, it's wonderful to not have to rely on on snowmaking. Um, it simplifies a lot of things. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we do have the ability to bring our snowmaking further up the mountain. What we don't have the ability to do is put more water in this system. Um, you know, water rights are pretty uh, heavily restricted out here. And our basin in particular has been identified as an area where they do not want to increase the use of the water and, and that has to do with certain tribal rights and, and environmental concerns of the white river itself.
1: So, so, so that, that's interesting. Aside from those snowmaking differences, what else have you had to learn out there, frankly, what ran pretty much how you remembered it and yeah. what was new? Cause you know, you didn't have to deal with things like avalanche mitigation in the East.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the scariest of them all, right, is the avalanche mitigation and not being familiar with with the details of that. But, you know, in general, what I can say is it was interesting to be able to, uh, you know, come from snowshoe and note that operationally um, Mountain Creek and Crystal are not all that dissimilar, right? We're both an hour plus outside of our our core markets, rely heavily on, on weekend metro traffic. Um, those things were all very, very similar. What was very different, as you pointed out, is the amount of snowfall we get mm-hmm. um, and and the avalanche side of that. And and when it came to that, um, you know, I had been told from several different sources that that our patrol leadership um, is some of the best in the business. And if I want to operate my mountain safely, listen to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what I did. You know, I, I never pretended to... To you know, know what I was doing in terms of avalanche mitigation, and and so you know, listening and learning and understanding and asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, just last year, uh, it was probably early March. We had a you know a, a pretty risky um, fractured layer that was pretty deep down, and we we're growing concerned over just how much snow was sitting on top of that and patrol came and told me we had to shut down, you know, a thousand acres of our ski terrain. And, you know, you can't take something like that seriously, but you know they walked me through it and it made absolute sense. And we did it. So, you know, I rely on them and, uh, and I continue to try to learn on that side. The other piece of crystal that was so very, very different is the rabid nature of our ski base the right. Pacific Northwest skis and they want to ski a lot and they come to the mountains all the time. And, um, I wasn't used to, you know, just to, to really almost not having to market, you know, right. in some ways, um, cause you know, they're honestly, there's not enough ski capacity in the Northwest today. And so, um, you know, as, uh, as I think you probably are aware, we've, we've, you know, we've worked on, um, trying to balance capacity more so than bring skiers out. And and that's a combination of things. It's a combination of, um, you know, it being a big mountain, um, of, of just this incredible quality of the terrain we have of a long-standing dedicated ski culture that exists in Crystal. And, um, and I think, you know, when you put those things together, you've, you've got a strong recipe. I had no idea we were getting into such a springboard platform when we came to Crystal. I didn't realize that. And so, um, you know, those were all big learnings. And I'll tell you, one of the best parts about moving to Crystal for me was, you um, getting back into a really core ski culture, you know, and, and truthfully, you know, running snowshoe felt a little bit like running a small town in the middle of the mountains than it did like running a ski area. Um, cause you're so worried about, you know, snowshoe is the police. It is the fire department. It oh, is, wow. it's everybody, it's everything right. out there. Right? right. Um, and so you end up in, um, not being as focused on the mountain as you'd like to and, you know, coming out here and, and, uh, you know, it, it really, Reconnected me to my my 20 year old ski bum, rock climbing bum roots that you know that got me into doing this in the first place, and uh, and that has been absolutely the most exciting part about being here is it's just fun every day. So
1: yeah, I mean the mountain is just lights out. You know, 500 inches of snow, even if it's a little heavier than. Maybe Utah snow. I mean, that speaks for, sure, for itself. Yeah. That's going to create a special experience. Crystal and Crystal for a long time, Frank was sort of one of those, you know, top five hidden gems that you might see yeah. in Powder Magazine once a year. Uh, it is not hidden anymore. Um, <laughs> a lot has changed, and you have a lot of issues working against you. And you and you referred to some of those earlier, but just take us through this. What are you up against on a daily basis? And just trying to manage not just the mountain, but the the volumes coming to the mountain. And why is this such a hard puzzle? Because I think you're working against a lot of factors that you have no control over, and you're trying to figure out the best solution to to a bunch of things you can't control. But what are those things? Just lay this out for us.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the number one thing we can't control is that the you know Western Washington population continues to grow quickly and um and the people who are coming here they want to assimilate into the Northwest culture which means they want to get outdoors they want to ski so we've got more and more skiers in this area and and very few you know ski areas within reach of a day visit and Mm -hmm. so you know you have us you have the summit and you have Stevens Um, you know other than that it's it's much more of a journey to be able to go out and ski and we're all very crowded on mm-hmm. peak days, on good snow days. And and that is very difficult uh, to manage because we want to create a good ski experience. And when people are, you know, backed up on the highway for an hour and a half, that's not going to be a good experience for people. And um, and so, you know, coming in and, and trying to find ways to, to, you know, to essentially find capacity, either, you know, through... Ex- um, you know, uh, temporary facilities while we figure out our, our long-term growth plan, uh, an intense focus on how to, you know, improve the, the parking and transportation and, and highway situation. Um, all of those things, um, have, have been big, big challenges. You know, if you look at Crystal, if you look at our ultimate capacity of the, of the mountain itself, it's a big mountain, you know, it's, it's, We've got a lot of acreage and, and a lot of ways to ski it, and we've got a, we've got more downhill capacity than, uh, than we could really utilize so that, you know, the slopes themselves aren't that crowded. Um, falling just below that is the lift capacity, and, um, you know, we don't have as much uphill capacity as we have in downhill capacity, and that's something that we're looking at, you know, where we're going to make the best improvements, where we're going to make the best investments to make that happen. But then, you know, the truth is it 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 comes down to you know day lodge space, it comes down to parking spaces, and it comes down to bathrooms. Those things are significantly undersized compared to the, the capacity of the mountain. And so those are the things that you know for the temporary situation. We, you know, we've brought in restroom trailers that you would find, you know, like go to a go to a golf event and you know, at, at, or a, or a festival. And I don't want to say festival because they're not necessarily porta johns, but you know, we've got these these bathroom trailers and we've put outdoor food service and things like that. And then um, you know, we're focused on on where we can actually invest to to um, increase the capacity. I think John put together. A really good master plan with the Forest Service. We're building off of that and amending that slightly, and um, you know, just our our plans are to to really increase that, those pieces of the capacity. Um, you know, we're going to start with some of the day lodge capacities and the parking capacities. We will move to lift capacity after that. Um, and we're going to continue to just focus on on balancing each of those. Mm-hmm. And if skiers continue to you know to come uh, as we think they will, then we'll continue to move all of those dials right up to the point that we hit that that peak downhill capacity. And then you know at that point we're kind of maxed out.
1: What about lodging capacity, Frank? I, I think that's what folks point to a lot. Is there's just not that many places to stay up there. Is there a way to significantly build up your on-site bed base.
0: Yeah, that's so. That's an excellent question, and and the answer is yes. It's not as easy as it would be if we owned land because we operate 100% on Forest Service land. A lot of the resorts where you see you know the villages and everything, typically that's private land for the village, and then the, the even if the ski area leases the, the mountain itself. It has some private land down in the base. We don't have that. So there are a lot of funding mechanisms to building lodging that we can't take advantage of. The Forest Service isn't going to let us sell condos or anything like that. So um, so we have, you know, it, it's more limited for us, but we do have the ability to add 273 hotel rooms to our mountain in our master plan. And we are focused on building that capacity out because, yeah, as you pointed out, if we want to take some pressure off of the highway or or off of the capacity issues, having that lodging allows us to spread the arrival experience and the departure experience into a longer weekend. Um, you know, it's funny when we have these these busy days, people will tell us, you know, oh, you've ruined the you've ruined the mountain with the Icon Pass and. And I'll tell you, you know, for a couple different reasons, but one of them um, is that, you know, we're still not marketing Crystal outside of the Washington area. You know, I'm almost hesitant to talk about Crystal with you, right? Because you know, (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna tell people about this fantastic mountain um, sitting up here in Washington, but but um, you know the. The skiers that are coming are still, you know, by and large, Western Washington skiers. And, and, um, and we have very, very few hotel rooms. Um, we have a great RV culture. The whole Pacific Northwest has a great RV culture and, and Crystal's no exception. And so we want to expand RV capacity. We want to expand the hotel room capacity. And so we're building out that plan and we're uh, working on different ways to, to, to finance those projects So that, you know, my my hope would be it's not going to happen this spring, but the spring after that, I would hope that we break ground on our first lodging project.
1: So it seems that the pinch point here is the road and and the Mm -hmm. road is one of those things you can't control. So just talk a little bit about that road and the problems that causes.
0: For sure. Um, Some things about the road. The first thing I'm going to tell you, which is a good thing about that road compared to what I'm used to is it's almost entirely below snow level um, 90% of the time there, are, you know, very few days when that road is covered in snow. So that's a good thing, right? So that, that we don't have to worry about that so much, but you leave the city of Enumclaw, which is the last, um, you know, outpost of civilization. Uh, it's kind of the, the exurbs of Seattle, Tacoma area. And once you leave that, you enter the woods and you're, you're now 40 miles before you have anything other than the little enclave of green water, which is, uh, you know, it's a it's a gas pump, a convenience store, um, a restaurant and, and a couple of, you know, a couple of little shops down there. And so you've got this two lane road that's that's a bit windier than what most people are used to. I spent eight years at snowshoes. So to me, it's straight as an arrow. <laughs> but uh, but um, but it's a two lane road through that entire distance. And, you know, the salt trucks will come through after snowfall and and uh spread salt that the elk want to come you know stand on the side of the road and and lick at and so you get people who are driving by and want to stop and see the elk and slow everybody down you know and so so that road is a big big challenge and so what we're focused on is trying to find ways to move more people out of their cars on that road into mass transportation um you know, mass transportation itself is not the, is not the solution. We've got to actually get people out of their cars because otherwise the bus just gets stuck in the same traffic that the, that the cars are stuck into. And so we're really focused on, on, on that. And then quite honestly, you know, simple things like how do we shave 20 seconds off of every car parking process? That's a clunky sentence, but but if we can get people off the road and into their into their parking space twenty seconds faster, you know, take three thousand cars times twenty seconds over the course of a morning, how much time and you know and have you taken out of that process? And so, things like that, things like mass transportation, are are how we're trying to attack that road issue. Um, you're right. The the odds of us being able to um, you know, to do anything about that road are are extremely small. I don't know that the state of Washington is going to want to, you know, add lanes to 40 miles of highway in the national forest, um, much of which is protected national forest. Right. So we're going to deal with that. But, but if we can add lodging to, to spread people into, you know, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, um, that takes some of the pressure off of Saturday and Sunday morning and, and night. If we can move some of our cars into buses, um, that takes more pressure off. If we can just get the end of that process a little bit faster, um, you know, then that's going to help with the process. And, and so we know that our, you know, crystal experience starts 40 miles away in Enumclaw. And, uh, so, you know, we're, we're very focused on, on, uh, you know, putting together sort of a a package of items that are going to help us reduce that congestion and make the drive up uh, a bit simpler.
1: Yeah. You know, Frank, you did two things this off season that I personally think are going to help a lot, but I want to talk about each one in detail because I think these are big changes for some of your skiers and it's going to take a while to get used to them. So the first one was dropping crystal mountain access on the icon pass from being unlimited, no blackout on the base pass to only having five days of blackouts on the base pass. And in order to get the no blackout crystal experience, you had to buy the full icon pass, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 more. So talk a little bit about your decision to do that and and why it just had to be done.
0: Yeah, so... Interestingly enough, we came into Crystal instantly, you know, added it to full access on the Icon Pass. Uh, essentially what we did is we converted your Crystal Pass over to an Icon Pass. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second year we, we dropped selling the Crystal Pass and only sold Icon and Icon Base. And um, the, the attempt there was to, you know, obviously take Crystal skiers and be able to move them throughout the network. That's, that's one of the motivators to why Altera bought Crystal. You know, um Rusty Gregory, our CEO, was a was a crystal skier uh coming out of UW where he played football. And once he was allowed to ski, he mm-hmm. you know, he came up here and he knew that this was a great mountain to, to you know for the Pacific Northwest. And so um, you know, we thought we'd be taking crystal skiers who are who are dedicated hardcore skiers and moving them outside of the market. The icon pass was actually a little cheaper than the than the crystal pass, or the base pass was a little cheaper than than the crystal pass. And um, you know, uh, the number of people who wanted to buy that pass was more than we anticipated, right? <laughs> I guess to <laughs> say the least. And um, so, um, having gone through a couple years of that, um, you know, we we just identified that we we can't make crystal as inexpensive as we were making it like that how else can you control capacity you know other than set hard limits on on the number of people which you know last year we did have to do Um, but but you know we we needed to sort of balance that value equation out a little bit and um so i you know bringing people to the to the full icon really put the pass back in line with the old crystal season pass price. So we figured, you know, we could balance it out by doing that a little bit. Uh, we did that before Vale lowered their price. so We didn't know they were going to do that. and um, We were definitely a bit concerned at, at you know, what would happen at, at that point. Um, but we do believe that we offer, you know, we're focused on the experience and, um, and we think that we're doing the right thing for us. Uh, and for our skiers and, and riders, but um, but moving to the full icon was something that we felt was extremely important to try to uh, balance out that equation while we build new capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what your follow up is going to be how well did that work? <laughs> and um, and we did not shed as many pass holders as, as I would have liked to be honest okay. with you. I think okay. people. You know, people. You know, more people probably got excited and said, "You know what? I'll pay a few hundred bucks more if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna get a better experience." Right. Um, so, so we're still gonna have some some of those challenges that we've had in the past, but um, but you know, like I said, we've that that's why we continue to be focused on both short term and long term capacity, and so we think we'll still be able to offer a really great on mountain experience. We're going to work really hard to make sure that we can get you to the mountain and on the mountain uh, much more quickly than in the past. You know, I can tell you a couple of years ago, we had, um, you know, ticket lines on a a Saturday that would take 45 minutes just to get the ticket, right? Wow. Well, we don't have ticket lines anymore. You know, between pass holders and advance purchase, which is kind of how we meter the overall number of skiers now by. By restricting our day tickets um, to advance purchase during those peak times, um, you know we can still meter the number of people here and 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 make sure that we're not just absolutely obliterating the experience on the mountain. And um, and you know so we can do that while we continue to build capacity and and make it a better mountain and you know, the, the ideal thing would be that we get to a point where we've added enough capacity that we can handle our, our regional market quite well. And then we can start to introduce people, you know, at other Icon Mountains who we think would like Crystal. Um, who from Palisades Tahoe would not want to come up and ski at Crystal, right? I mean, they're the same mountain. Jackson Hole skiers would love to ski at Crystal, right? But but we don't we don't talk to those skiers right now because, you know, we're, we're focused on our, our local market.
1: Yeah, I was actually, Frank, to be honest with you, surprised that you didn't make this move sooner because I remember the headlines. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was January 2020 when you kind of started the season dry and then you just got powder, powder, powder. And everyone tried to come at once. And basically you were saying you were parked out at seven in the morning saying if you're an Unum Claw, turn around
0: yeah so it was too late by the time that happened you know these this icon program you know next year is nearly is nearly packaged right because you got to work with partners and things like that and so we didn't really have the opportunity to do that but you know we had that that day it was January 10th right I can still it' it'll, it'll be emblazed in my memory forever <laughs> and what had happened was as, as you noted we had a slow start but not only that, But access to Stevens and access to the summit were both cut off on the west side due to snow. And they have relatively higher elevation approaches than ours. We're at 2,000 feet, you know, and they tend to be up closer to their base areas. And um, so if you wanted to ski the first powder day of Washington, you had to do it at Crystal. And um, we had bumper to bumper traffic 50 miles away. It was, it was, it was absolutely stunning. And so, you know, that was when I called up Altera and I said, you're going to think I'm out of my mind, but I have to stop selling day tickets on (laughs) Sundays Sundays right now. And, uh, you know, and had full support. We, we did it and, and, um, and needed it because we had a few more weekends that were, you know, just, we had a wonderful powder January that year and, and the pent up demand and, and um, you know, since that day, we've, we've worked every weekend and, and learned every weekend about how to figure out how many tickets we can make available based on, you know, what we think is going to happen that week. And we've gotten better and better at it. And, um, and that's still how we operate today. COVID, you know, gave us intense practice at that right. because you know we went from a, a mountain capacity of around 8,000 to a limit of, you know, between 5,000, 5,500 and, um, And so, you know, limiting capacity on the mountain, which we did, nobody said we had to limit capacity, but we did have to limit lift, um, you know, lift density. And so when you, you know, decrease your uphill uh, capacity, we didn't want to end up with hour and a half lift lines, obviously, So, uh, so we did decrease the capacity on the mountain. And so we did that last year, and this year we'll be able to get back up to our full capacity. But, you know, that's just going to continue to bring those those challenges of, you know, the highway, and bring even more skiers up the highway. So and that's why we've kind of moved to this transportation and busing and paid parking program that we're doing this
1: year. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I want to talk about the paid parking. I have one more one more question about ICON Pass first. So of course. Th- there would have been an intermediate tier between dropping it off of the ICON base and putting it on full icon, right? So if you look at yeah. Palisades, Tahoe, Mammoth, Stratton, Sugarbush, they have a model where uh, an icon base is a season pass, but it has holiday blackouts. So Crystal was just unlimited. Did you consider going to that blackout tier? Did you say, you know what? We just have way too many people here. This thing <laughs> needs to go five days with blackouts and and up to the full icon pass for full access.
0: Yeah. So um, first of all, retrospectively, I'm glad we didn't take the interim step. Yeah. Um, But what we what we noted and this, by the way, was another learning for for us here. Remember that, as I as I mentioned, you know, we have a large, you know, core skier component um, um, audience, I guess is the way I would describe it. You know, and and people who really, um, you know, for whom skiing is is core to their winter life. And the interesting thing that, that I learned in my first winter or two here was those blackout dates aren't actually the busiest days at Crystal hmm. because what happens on the, most of those blackout dates is that our skiers use that extra time off to plan their trip. They go away. So they leave right. Crystal, you know. And, um, and so I remember, you know, my first President's Weekend with David Perry, um, coming to visit and bringing them up onto the mountain and skiing onto the Forest Queen lift at 10 o'clock in the morning with no <laughs> lift line and just being stunned, right? So so the blackout dates that the Icon Pass offers aren't really the dates that we needed to shed capacity. I mean, we needed, or, or you know, shed visitation. Um, the, the times that we were looking to balance out the equation were, you know, just your standard Saturdays and Sundays when you have good snow. And, um, and so that step wasn't going to do it for us. And so we felt that just jumping straight to, you know, jumping straight off the base pass, so to speak, was, was really the better fit for us. And I,
1: I think absolutely it was the right move. That also takes us into your paid parking plan, which was recently announced. I thought that Crystal did a really nice job of positioning this as, Hey, this is a change. You know, we understand it's frustrating. Um, rather than some resorts we've seen who have been who have rolled out paid parking and, and told us they were doing us all a big favor. I, I, I think you did a nice job <laughs> with the messaging here, but mm-hmm. but tell us about the plan.
0: Yeah, so I, I will say you know that you know it's it's a it's a legitimate statement to say that when we do change our operation, we believe that we will be more profitable by providing better experiences. So we do these things in the interest of a better experience. That is true. Um, you know, you don't know me from a hole in the wall to know that I'm speaking with integrity, but, you know, it's true. And so, you know, this move this year that that we made is, you know, what we feel is in the interest of our skiers overall. It's in the interest of our business and it's in the interest of our environment. So, what we would, what we've asked is that people who um, don't carpool, um, uh, pass holders excluded, um, people who don't carpool will pay to park. Um, and, and all of the money that we're raising from those folks who decided to, you know, drive in onesies, twosies that entire drive up from Enumclaw they're the ones who are going to pay for our bus program. And so they help us um, enhance the bus program that we trialed two years ago uh, when we had those sudden sellout days um, and help us to make that program more reliable and better in that, you know, when we first brought it out, it was sort of, okay, how do we, you know, how, how can we get some buses here? And if we're selling out, we'll start to tell people to go over to the buses, Right. What we can do now is we can go out there and say, you know what, there are going to be buses every weekend. There are going to be buses and they're there. And if you would like to, um, you know, not have to pay. By the way, if you want to save four gallons of gas round trip, if you want to save on that parking fee, if you want to save the wear and tear in your vehicle, if you want to just have a more relaxing drive to the mountain, Stop at Claw at the Expo Center and get on that bus and we'll bring you up and we're going to work on ways to adding even more value to the bus by, you know, are you a day visit skier? Well, let's get that ticket on you before you even get to Crystal. We'll do that on the bus for you, right? Um, Do you need rentals? Let's get your rental information up to the shop in advance. We're going to drop you off at the front of the lot so that you don't have to then get out of your car, go to the shuttle stop, find your way through the shuttles and things like that. And so, you know, we're trying to push a lot of value towards that bus and and we're paying for it with the paid parking revenue. Um, we've also added um, some technology to be able to uh, ensure that we're getting full use of all of our parking spaces. So one of the things, you know, this is now Altera's third winter, my third winter, or we finished our third winter. One of the things that I didn't see coming, you know, you mentioned 500 inches of snow. Um, When we cleared out the lots at the end of the year last year for our final cleanup, we had lost 250 parking spaces to snow creep, right? Wow. And so, you know, we've added GPS technology to be able to, so that our, our heavy equipment operators, they know where the edge of that parking lot is and they know to push the snow past that spot, right? So it's things like that that we're doing. Uh, we've added staff so that we're going to be able to park cars, um, you know, more quickly, get you into that spot, you know, and off the highway more quickly, uh, by parking multiple areas of the, of the lot at the same time. The guy that we hired to run our parking um, was military logistics before he mm-hmm. came here. And uh, so I don't think we could have that operation in better hands because that's nice. what it is. It's, a, you know, yeah. it's a, you know, a military-grade logistics operation, getting those 3,000 cars parked you know, efficiently in the morning. And so, um, yeah, we're going the paid parking route, and I know how controversial that can be to the entire industry. Um, but we're doing it with equity, and um, and we're doing it to you know for what I believe are the right reasons. We're going to pull cars off the road, um, and you know we're we're gonna we're gonna claim that that environmental benefit at the same time, you know, because as much as this is good for our skiers and for our business. Yeah. You know, I think we deserve some credit that we're going to take some carbon out of the equation at the same time, which is a big part of what we you know, want to be focused on.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good plan, Frank. And, and I think the ski industry in general needs to find ways to orient itself away from the car is how you reach the mountain at all times. I, I think the winter park snow train, for example, is a really good example of this. Um, yeah. A, a couple of concerns with the bus program. Um, less to do with, with how you're running it than just the, the climate we're living in. So number one um, is just during COVID, people are, are mass transit shy. So, so what's your thinking there behind mask rules and keeping people safe and, and how full you're going to load those buses? And number two, we very much were asked for the most part last year to use our car as the base lodge, keep your bags out of the lodge, want to keep it uncrowded. But if you're dropping someone off on a bus, you can't really ask them to do that. So so have you thought through those two uh, issues and, and how you're going to manage that this coming season?
0: Yeah, I, I think we have. And um, so when we look at the buses, uh, you know, we, we spoke to people in uh, Pierce County Transit to understand kind of what are the. What have the bus behaviors been over the past, you know, six, eight months? You know, what's going on with, with people's willingness to ride a bus and what are they concerned about when they do? Um, and we found that, you know, um, the use of, of buses and mass transportation has been making a return um, with the increased number of vaccinations. We're fortunate in that, you know, um, Western Washington has an extremely high overall vaccination rate and, and we're seeing cases come down. And um, and it is still, you know, it's public transportation and, and everyone is going to have to be fully masked the entire time on the bus. Um, and, yeah, that's probably going to tell, you know, inhibit some people from wanting to ride the bus. But that's another one of those things that is outside of our control. So we'll move the number of people that we're able to and we'll make sure that we have, you know, buses available, much like Lyft, if, if you want to find a seat um, without someone next to you, we're going to be able to accommodate that. Um, and, uh, and aside from that, you know, you will be wearing the mask and, and that's about what we think we can pull off for this year. And then when they get up and have a place to put their stuff and whatnot, um, you know, we don't have a lot of new indoor space that we didn't have last year. We're building it, but it's not here, but, um, we've, um, You know, remember in the spring, we all thought we'd be done with COVID by now. Yep. Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, at Crystal, one of the things we took out of COVID was, you know, the Northwest is not a particularly cold skiing environment. You know, our days are in the 20s, um, you know, or in the 30s. And uh, as you know, after coming out of snowshoe where, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and it might be zero, it might be 20 below zero. Um, you know, it felt downright balmy here. Yeah. And what we noticed was that as long as they can be protected from getting wet, people really enjoy being outside. And yeah. um, so we've we've actually added more outdoor um, uh, food offerings and dining offerings and locker access and things like that than we had before so that, you know, the base lodges are a little bit more readily available. And if you don't want to go inside and use a base lodge and you'd rather – you know, stay outside. You can still, we, we still have lockers and things like that for you to put your stuff and we have tables and chairs and things like that. We think we'll be able to, to, you know, seat all of our skiers comfortably and, and and let them have space to put their stuff. So, um, and, and we know that we will still have some people who will choose to use their, you know, their, their car and they, they will make that drive. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I made a nice adjustment to that myself last year. I figured out when I fold the seats down in my minivan, I, I have, it's like having my own little slope side cabana. So I actually came to prefer it by the end of the season, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. How fun was it? Like right, to see, I mean, it was just when I walk out at the end of the day and I'm walking past the smell of grills and, and watching people have a couple of beers and things like that. It was, it was, that's what that's what mountain life is supposed to be about. So it was pretty great that people are able to, to do that. And um, you know, it doesn't necessarily gel well with our need to bring cars off of the mountain. You know, there's, there's us, excuse me, there's us and there's the cottonwoods, right? All, yeah. and we we, uh, we struggle with the same things and it doesn't do that, but we, you know, we will continue to make these changes. We'll watch how these changes uh, behave and then we'll make more changes you know, so we'll find balance.
1: All right. Well let's talk about your lift fleet here, because as you said, Crystal is absolutely huge and you have no shortage of downhill capacity. Uh the uphill right. capacity it uh, you, you probably want to build out over time. And I've I've seen tons of proposals and I saw um Boyne or Kirchers or, or however you want to frame that. I saw the master mm-hmm. plan. So um, you know, looking over all these possible projects and we can go through them one by one, but but first I'll just ask you. Frank what is your wish list for crystal's lift fleet
0: yeah well first of all i'm really grateful that john made the number of investments he did i you know there are several mountains out there that have not been able to make lift investments and um, and for me to be able to go to my ownership and say um the first priority is not lifts the you know that's the second priority. Um, I think is, it puts me in a good position because it helps me to get more um, ownership buy-in to, to make the investments that I need. But, um, but yeah, so when we look at our lift fleet, there's a couple things we're looking at. We're looking at overall capacity, and then we're looking at age of the fleet. If I look at um, Rainier Express, it's a first-generation detachable quad. It's loud. It has more maintenance issues than most of our lift fleet. It's time for you know that that lift to to be replaced, and um, and so we have that as you know amongst the the, the top replacements in our schedule. Are you thinking um, another
1: four there, or would you put a six?
0: Well, it, so we are some more pieces to that. Um, okay. My original thought was to simply go to a six, okay. um, but there there are some challenges in how that lift sits at the top. Mm. Uh, and how close it is to the gondola yep. where, you know, when you add those few feet to the, uh, you know, to the lookers, right. As you're coming up there, it, we have some challenges as to whether or not we can get a six in that same location. Mm. Okay. So it may be a four, but there's a couple things about running a four that, um, you know, we can go to, a the new technology of a, of a direct drive, uh, four pack, which, uh, provides for faster uphill capacity so you know we think that uh you know newer technology on a four is going to help and um and also be a bit easier to load than than the existing Rex with the the um you know the the loading uh the length of of the loading ramp and things like that that are going to allow us to to speed up the lift that the truth is rex doesn't run at its full potential uh, because once we get it up to full potential, people are falling a lot. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, so we have to slow it down a bit, and it, it has to do with the overall layout of that lift and whatnot. But, um, you know, when we look at our overall lift program, there's a couple areas where we need to be able to get people to more quickly. And, and you know, we, as, as something else that I had to learn coming west from east is, you know, the difference between your overall lift capacity and your out-of-base lift capacity. Uh, You know, every mountain that I've been involved with, they're the same, Um, you know, because your lifts run from top to bottom. (laughs) And so, um, you know, whereas I don't think we have an overall lift capacity issue at the moment, um, we have an out of base capacity issue. So first thing in the morning, you know, the race between our late sunrise and and patrol uh, mitigation work and being able to get people out of here before the lines build up to to, um, significantly um, you know, that that, that equation is, is off balance and, and we have trouble getting people out first thing in the morning. So what we would uh, what our plan is uh, at the moment, and we're going through the you know the, the cost evaluations and the topography and the forest service side of this. But what I'd ultimately like to do is take the existing gondola to our summit, which is um, limited capacity gondola. It's only 900 people per hour. I'd like to take that, And uh, turn it so that it goes up to Campbell Basin. Uh, Campbell Basin is the core of our intermediate and beginner skier. And it's access to our our iconic um, chair six terrain and Mm -hmm. the king and the queen and and all of that. So we need, you know, that will help us move people from, you know, out of the base much more quickly. And then we'll put a full capacity, you know, 2,800 people per hour gondola to the summit. And so okay. those two things right there I think really address a lot of the the lift capacity concerns that we have as far as getting people out of the base I think that that will take some of the pressure off of Rex or Mount Rainier Express as well um, so you know replace Rex with a D line uh, quad uh, which will increase that capacity capacity marginally um, and then add 2,800 people per hour of both overall and out of base capacity by making these gondola switches. And our uphill capacity is now in line with our existing downhill capacity with those, you know those very moves. So that's how we'd like to attack that. Um, and then beyond that, you know we'll start looking over, um, back at the Bullion Basin, um, which sits on the east side of our mountain and has a you know good offering of intermediate terrain, my my hesitancy with Bullion Basin exists only in that it's it's a bit disconnected from the rest of the mountain. And you know, both of my past two mountains, I've I've experienced what it's like to try to move people from you know, what they view as the real skiing, you know, into you know what they view as like the overflow. Um now bullion basin is no joke. It would have the same amount of snow. It's got, you know, really great top to bottom consistent pitch and it'll be great skiing, but but it'll be viewed as as sort of that overflow. And so, you know, I've I've been a little hesitant to to move over that way. But I do think once we've you know, once we've maxed out the capacity in, in the part of our permit area that we're already using, um, you know, then completing that master plan by moving over to Bullion Basin is is that's that's truly the next step. And, um, you know, when we do that, I think will depend on on, you know, what our continued growth is and, and how well people react to the things that we're doing
1: today. So I, I think I've seen that terrain referred to as East Peak. Is that right?
0: So Bullion Basin, I think the most accurate way to describe that would be the lower half of East Peak. So, um, so Bullion Basin sits on on the um, east side of our valley. And if you were to continue out past all the way to the summit of of which is truly the you know that's the Pacific Crest, the the Pacific Divide, um, all the way to the top of that. That was John's East Peak dream and. Um, When when John put forth his his plan to the Forest Service, their response was, you know, there's a lot of people who for whom that is important, natural and backcountry terrain. And and until you show that you really need that to service um, skiers and, and, and riders in Washington. Um, you know, we're not going to approve that one right now. So let's see you do some of your other things. If you still need it after that, let's talk then. So ultimately, if we continue to see, you know, the, the scope of growth we've seen and, and after we've pulled every other trigger um, to, to try to add capacity to the mountain, if we still need capacity, I think the Forest Service will be a bit more amenable at that point to you know to our desire to go up there and man if if we can add East Peak, you know, one of my desires is to um to bring the you know the the Olympic nature of of Crystal Mountain back, you know, back well back. Um you know we've we've grown Olympians here and um and we've we have you know a really great race program here in, in the in CMAC. And um, you know, East Peak offers some incredible downhill opportunities that, that maybe could help us, you know, bring back that that downhill competitive aspect to, to Crystal, as well as just create some some really fun top to bottom good, you know, good terrain.
1: Now, wasn't there skiing there several decades ago and there just wasn't enough snow?
0: Yeah, Bullion Basin was skiable. Um, You know, I don't remember exactly this. I think it was taken out of service back in the pre boeing days. And I think it was uh, less of a is there snow and more of is there enough snow there to support that when we have, you know, financial challenges and just keeping the rest of our mountain going. So the infrastructure was pulled and, and relocated. Um, But, you know, our challenge isn't about getting people to come ski now. Our challenge is about finding the capacity to to service the skiers who want to be here. How lucky am I that I came to Western Washington? I've got a ski market that is rabid to see us offer more skiing. And I've got ownership who's got money willing to spend on, incre- on you know, increasing capacity. I think I have one of the best jobs in the ski business. Right now.
1: <laughs> so. Uh, um, so I just want to go back to that out of base capacity issue for mm-hmm. a moment. I've seen in the 2004 master plan, there was a proposal for a second base area and a high speed quad up Kelly's gap. And that would have been uh skier's, our lookers right of the present gondola, that whole, that mm-hmm. whole operation. Is that still on the table?
0: Um I, I don't think the base area down there is on the table. Um, as we've reworked the plan, I think that um, I think that we'll be able to do without the Kelly's Gap chair remains on the plan. Um, and you know from an out-of-base standpoint, um, you know, that's a great way to get our Northway and and our Green Valley skiers up and out without having to, you know, make their way through the, through the main crowds. Um, I would tell you that right now, if we look at priorities, from my standpoint, it starts with the, you know, the gondola conversion we talked about um, getting Rex replaced, getting bullion basin going. And then if we still have some out of base concerns, then I think we move over to that. And And honestly, what I'd like to do in addition to that is, we've really struggled with finding a feasible way to get some groomed terrain into the Northway area, which by the way, it sounds terrible to some of our skiers because yeah. they like the fact that, you know, no one's there. But the way Northway behaves today is we get a powder dump and Northway gets crushed for a day, right? right. And then as soon as that powder is uh, tracked out, nobody goes to Northway. And so I don't think increasing, you know, putting a couple of groomed, access points into northway is going to hurt the overall experience i think what it'll do is on those powder days it's going to be as busy as it is today Um, that's when the powder hounds come out and then you know what we'll be able to do is move some more people over there um, without it really it's not a crowded chair when it's not snowing and um, so if we can just get take a little more pressure off of green valley take a little bit more pressure off of forest queen um, by you know, finding a couple ways for people to enjoy that area out there, um, then I'd like to do that as well. We just, we truly just haven't figured it out yet. But Northway is a special place, right? You're on this one, two-person fixed grip chair, sitting in a thousand acres of nothing but snow, trees, you know, and and uh, and nature, and and so um, you know, being able to make that a little bit more accessible, I think, is important to us as well.
1: You know, Northway is an interesting chair. It's one of the newest double chairs in the world, and and probably one yep. of the newest long ones, as well as chair six. Do you think that, in retrospect, keeping those chairs as low capacity chairs was the right decision, given the terrain they access and it's pretty challenging? Or, or do you think that perhaps a higher capacity chair would better serve those areas if you do start doing some of these things like grooming pathways down?
0: Yeah. Um, so if we talk about Northway in particular, um, if after adding some grooming, we see that, you know, we've added too much to, to that chair, then yes, that's an area where increasing the capacity would make some sense. And, and we'd probably convert that to a detachable quad and go from there. Chair six is a little bit different. Um, chair six accesses, um, certainly, our most famous terrain, um, and you know, incredible steep, deep powder terrain um, with great views. And, and as you're probably familiar, it you know most of it is basically hike to off the top of chair six. We have a couple concerns. Um, we abut not only Mount Rainier National Park, but we abut um, some pristine, designated pristine wilderness uh, of of the national park, and so. You know, we work every day with park rangers and park staff to make sure that that, you know, that that tight line on the top of that hill um, isn't, you know, suddenly seen as as open access into Mount Rainier National Park by people who shouldn't be there. And so, um, you know, we had the Silver King chair was recommended, but you know, that was going to dump people into an area that would be completely irresistible to skiers within the park. And the park actually, um, intervened on, on the thought of adding that chair. And so we haven't added that chair. Chair six, I think is appropriate. Um, chair six is a little bit of a, of a gauge to say, are you sure you're ready for this terrain? Right. Because it's a very different ski environment. right? Right. And so, so I think, um, Yes, on a deep powder day, that chair is going to get long, but a little like Northway, you know, it's, it's a bit balanced most days. And, um, and I think, you know, to ask me in five years, I might have a different answer. But I think right now, especially given that it's in this odd place of being the, the access point for our most difficult and most interesting terrain, also the terrain that you can get yourself into the most trouble in. That chair base sits in the middle of our, you know, best intermediate and beginner terrain on the mountain. Um, I think it makes sense to, to have a slightly higher bar to access that, that area. So I'm uncomfortable with that chair the way it is. And I think John made the right call.
1: Yeah, it's uh, one more thing that the, that the Kirchers did, and, and most of Boyne's resorts do this, is they, they put in night skiing and mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if they put in night skiing crystal or if you just had it but it's there uh and the way that dana Bowen um, over at sunday river explained it to me is that Boyd basically came in and said look if, if you have night skiing you're gonna help spread people out is when they arrive because they don't feel like they have to get there as soon as the lifts open right. and and they've instituted this at most of their resorts so it looks like you have this little night skiing footprint it you know it hits a lot of your greens uh, have you considered expanding that frank
0: Yeah. So, um, if we look at our night skiing, uh, it was, it was absolutely put in place for that very reason. Um, I think it helps at departure time. I don't think it has really helped us with arrivals. Um, people want fresh powder, right. And that's just, you know, we, we're not, um, a heavily groomed mountain. And so we rely on that powder. And, you know, that was one of those learnings coming out here in that, you know, if you're mountain, you know, I'm used to 100% grooming. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, with maybe a couple of bump runs and uh, all three mountains that I've been involved with, that was the situation. So when you come out here, people, you know, most of our skiers know that, you know, the best skiing comes in the early hours. So it hasn't really helped there, but it has helped on the, on the um, departure side. I, we have in our plan the ability to run that night skiing all the way up to the Campbell Basin Lodge. I think we will do that, but I don't think we're going to do that until we have lodging. Um, So we're going to make some moves to try to drive a little bit more night skiing business here um, this year. Um, You know, we saw, you know, the unfortunate reality was because people couldn't get here before noon because we were, you know, out of reservations. Um, we saw a lot of people that did start to come at noon and, and stay the night. And so we, you know, we had to suddenly go, oh, this little night skiing thing that we've never paid any attention to. Um, it needs attention. We need to do that as well as we do the day skiing. And so, you know, we did focus on that. And, and now, um, you know, we'll continue to to, to test ways to, to move people into that. But, um, you know, it's it's. Um, We are day visit, and and for a lot of folks, I think what we see is that the idea of, you know, skiing until 9 or 10 o'clock and then getting on that road, you know, to get all the way back to the city is not necessarily, you know, what they want. Summit has a gangbusters night skiing business. Yeah. They're also half the distance to Seattle that we are. On the interstate. uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. On the interstate, right? And and if I could replicate, you know, the those midweek nights that we had at Mountain Creek where we had anywhere from thirty to sixty school buses coming in and you know and providing a good base of business. Um, yeah, I would I would do that in a heartbeat, but that's that's not really Crystal's market. Um so so we will grow it, um, but I think it's gonna wait until we have the lodging in place and and we kind of have that, that extra driver for the night skiing business.
1: Makes a lot of sense. I, I think that Forest Queen Express pod would, would look uh, lights out with night skiing. That looks like really nice terrain right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to wrap this up here today, Frank, by t- talking about one of my very favorite things in skiing, and that's the long season. Crystal does it as well as anyone in the country. As far as I know, you were the only Terra Mountain to reopen after the shutdown last year. Uh, enormous respect for that. And I thought it was really interesting this past season because Steven's past shut down in early April and they might've had the deepest base in the country. They had a couple hundred mm-hmm. inches on the ground and mm-hmm. Crystal said, okay, you know, we, they, you stayed open until May like usual and said, okay, see you later. And he said, no, actually we're going to reopen. And, and you <laughs> kept reopening for bonus weekends. I thought that yeah. was so cool. Like that, that's the kind of thing to me that just wins you skiers forever. But talk about your philosophy. I know Crystal has had this philosophy for a long time and you're continuing that tradition. But just talk about that tradition and why, why you make it a point to keep doing that with Crystal and and making sure people have that long season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I will tell you that our friends down at, uh, you know, Palisades Tahoe and Mammoth both wanted to reopen in the spring. But in California, they were unable to do what we were able to do. Um, but we do it because this is, this is going to sound cheesy. We do it cause we, we just can't help ourselves. We really like doing it. It's so spring skiing is, is so much fun. Our skiers, they come, so we don't have to worry about running out of skiers. Um, so it's, it's, we do it because we can, and we will always run, until we just don't feel comfortable being on the snow. That's, that's what we're going to do every single year. And uh, I believe, you know, with the exception of, obviously, Timberline, who doesn't really, you know, close, I believe that we were the last mountain to, you know, close for the year last year. And uh, we took a lot of pride in that. We had a ton of fun doing it. Even our team, who is, you know, just beat up and tired by the time the end of April rolls around, the team wants to do it because being outside, we finally get sun in yeah. May and June. We start to see sun, and we don't have that all winter. And so, so that the chance to do that um, is good. And, and quite honestly, our guests are in the best spirits that time of year. And uh, and instead of feeling like a drag, it actually feels a little bit more like uh, you know a reward for for the rest of the season. And so we do it because we really enjoy doing it and um, and because our skiers make it possible they keep coming. So our plan would be to move straight from skiing into uh into scenic gondola rides every summer and we'll do that on the schedule that uh, mother nature lets us do.
1: Amazing. Well, uh Frank, yeah, I cannot wait to see all this come together. It sounds like you have some huge plans for the future of Crystal Mountain. I know it's Probably, I would say one of the most challenging mountains to run over the past five years, just given the population growth and where you are and the icon pass and the snow and COVID and everything else. And I think you just crushed it. So I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to me about it. And I wish you the very best luck in the future. And hopefully I'll be out there someday to see it for myself.
0: Thanks a lot, Stuart. I think, um, first of all, I'd love to see you out here. And second of all, please say hello to my friends at Mountain Creek next time you get up there because I miss those guys.
1: (laughs) I will, sir. I will be up there many times this this winter. So, all right, Frank, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. That's Frank DeBerry, president and CEO of Crystal Mountain, Washington with a little mountain creek thrown in there. Yes, you're welcome for that. You know what? I often say that the best interviews are people who don't have bosses, people who own their mountains, like John Schaefer at Berkshire East or Lazlo Vete at Platykill, but I might have to take that back. Frank, you crushed it. I really enjoyed that. You are not sitting in an easy pilot seat, but you are commanding it well, and I wish you the best with that very challenging mountain. Thank you all for listening. For those of you who have never skied washington i bet you are looking at that icon passenger your boot bag through a new lens now put crystal on your list next up ski cooper general manager dan Torcell. that one is already in the bag and it is awesome listen if you think you're too good for ski cooper you're wrong you are going to want to catch that one then the next week Bell Resorts, Eastern Region CEO Tim Baker will join me, followed by Shawnee Main owner Jeff Homer, Jackson Hole CEO Mary Kay Buckley, Smuggler's Notch owner Bill Stritzler, Wachusett owner Jeff Crawley, Steamboat CEO Rob Perlman. And that is just before the end of the year. I am starting to line up some stuff for 2022 and it is going to be huge. I will not let you go without a reminder to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing Newsletter at StormSkiing.com. Also, follow along on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. You can also find the Storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.